Our scripture passage this evening is Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 1748. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Here now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. In the reading of God's word, may he bless it to his people. We're also going to be looking at Lord's Day 4 of the Heidelberg Catechism. be found in the back of your green Psalter hymnals on page 11. can read the answers together with one voice. But doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? No. no. God created man with the ability to keep the law. Man, however, tempted by the devil in reckless disobedience, robbed himself and his descendants of these gifts. Will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry about the sin we are born with, as well as the sins we personally commit. As a just judge, he punishes them now and in eternity. He has declared, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful, 
but he is also just. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. It's the teaching of the Catechism. Will you pray with me? Father, we've heard your word. We've heard the teaching of our confession concerning your justice. And we ask, Lord, that you would grant us the heart, the ears, and the wisdom to understand what it is that we need to know about who you are and why it is important to know that you are the just judge. But you are also the merciful one. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I don't know about you guys, but um, sometimes I like to watch shows like Law and Order and things like that where you've got the courtroom scene, right? It's intriguing. There's intrigue. There's mystery. There's how is this thing going to turn out? And it seems as if one of the interesting things about that show is that these criminals try to get off on technicalities, um, parts of the law that they think that they can use to their favor. It doesn't mean that it's just or unjust. It just means that they're trying to use the law in their favor. And Supreme Court Justice Horace Gray once had a situation like this. He informed a man who had appeared before him in a lower court and had escaped conviction on a technicality of the law. And this is what he said to him. I know that you are guilty, and you know it. And I wish you to remember that one day you will stand before a better and a wiser judge, and that there you will be dealt with according to justice and not according to law. What Horace Gray was really saying there is that There is no difference between justice and God's law. That there is no such thing as getting off the hook on a technicality when it comes to God. There's no courtroom scene in which a good lawyer can get you off the hook because he knows the books. That's what we're talking about today. We're talking about the just judge, who God is. And if there's one thing that I would want you to take away from this evening, it would be this. The God is just because God is justice. If that doesn't make sense to you now, I hope as we go throughout the sermon, it will make more sense to you. It will come to mean something more. God is just because God is justice. We're going to be looking at this in three points. What God's justice involves... Uh, how God's justice is expressed. 
And then lastly, why God's justice is maintained. So what God's justice involves, how God's justice is expressed, and why God's justice is maintained. So let's start here with point number one. It correlates with question nine in our catechism. If you know where we're at in the catechism, the Lord's Day 3, we were told that we cannot keep this law that God is commanding us to keep. And the reason for that is the fall in the garden. And so the natural response in in question 9, and the natural human response, the natural sinful response, I believe, is that there's been an injustice. Uh, How can God hold against us what we are not able to keep, what we are not able to do? How can God do that? Is there injustice with God because he demands from us what we are unable to do? It's an important question, and it's one that many have thought of. Well, the answer, of course, is no, there is no injustice with God in O. God made man capable of performing it. This is why Genesis is so important. This is why the first three chapters of the Bible are so important that we cannot ever lose focus of that picture. Because God made man upright, holy, able to keep God's law. Adam and Eve could have lived perfectly. They made the choice to turn away from God to trust their own judgment, to turn to the temptation of the devil. We lost it, didn't we? We lost that ability. We lost the ability to keep God's law perfectly through the temptation of the devil. And what the catechism calls Reckless disobedience. Reckless disobedience. This is what I want you to think of. In the garden, God told Adam, you can do whatever you want, just can't eat from that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, if you do that, I will fill this world, this perfect world that I have called very good with a garden that looks just like this. It will be wonderful. It will be beautiful. And this world will be filled with image bearers that will glorify me perfectly. It will be a, a perfect world, a wonderful world. That's all you can't do is eat from this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And the one thing that God told them not to do, that's what they did. This is why we need to understand what it means for, for Adam, for Adam to represent us. Adam is a representative. I need to learn how to spell. Representative. 
Adam's a representative for us. Now, the way that government is supposed to function, if this was a perfect world, would be that the representative that you have, let's say in the House of, the, of Illinois, or uh, the House of Representatives on the national level, that they would be the one who speaks to your values, speaks to your convictions, speaks to what you want to go on in the government, right? Well, I had an interesting experience not too long ago. I was told that there was this bill that was passing through the House of Representatives, um, and some Christians were concerned because we feared that it was going to be bad for Christian schools, independent Christian schools. It was going to be something that was not going to allow them to have essentially a statement of belief that said that, no, we don't want to have any students here that um, struggle with homosexuality or whatever it may be, sort of a moral code on which they allow certain students to come in. And I uh, sent an email to our representative in the House of Representatives here in Cook County. I'm pleading with her not to pass this bill. But this was against one of our core amendments, which is that we should not interfere with religion, uh, that we should have the ability to assemble with our convictions. And I got a response from her, and her response was, I'm sorry that you feel that way, that, but I co-signed this bill. And that doesn't probably surprise any of you else who live in Cook County, but uh, it was an expression to me that my representative did not represent me. It was an imperfect representation. And I'm sure that many of us feel that way about government officials that they don't perfectly represent us, that they don't really hold our values, that we're sort of a minority in some cases when it comes to our convictions about what we believe and what we want to see happen in the public square. That's not the case for Adam. Adam is a perfect representative. He perfectly represents us as humanity, as humankind, he is our father in the truest sense. And this is why we cannot claim or say to God that his, he's done an injustice to us because of what one man did. Well, we could say things like, well, I don't even know Adam. Never even met Adam. I wasn't there when Adam did that. But all that really is, is pride. It's saying, if I were there, I would have done differently. If I were there, I wouldn't have had all of mankind fallen in sin like stupid Adam. But we are fallen in him because he is a perfect representative. Adam did what all of us would have done. Because of that, we are all guilty with him. We are all fallen in him. And because of that, it means that there is no unfairness in God. There's no unfairness with God. God is not doing us an injustice by holding us accountable to his law. 
Because God did not create us in sin and fallen. We have brought that upon ourselves. He's perfectly just to require us to keep his law perfectly and to punish us eternally if we do not. God's justice involves his holding mankind accountable. Because they were created upright, holy, able to keep his law. They made a deliberate choice, though, to turn away from God and to plunge humanity into the curse, into the fall. God is just because God is justice. But how is this justice expressed? Let's look at that. Moving on to point two. How God's justice is expressed. Question 10 says, will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? This question is really the question that is going on right after they bit into that fruit. Right after they sewed some fig leaves together because they were naked and ashamed. Right after they heard God walking and hid and they heard the voice of God. The question is, is God going to allow such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished. And the answer is certainly not. Certainly not. Even though in humanity's current state, We are unable to keep the law that God requires of us. God still holds us accountable to it. This is what's often called the covenant of works. It's the covenant that was given to Adam. The one which he broke. The one which he failed. And it's the covenant that all humanity in Adam is still in. To keep the law, to abide by the law. Or, as the quotation that question, the answer 10 pulls from, Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26, quoted also in Galatians 3 10, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. There's a curse that has fallen upon all of us. Because the covenant given to Adam, the covenant of works, he broke. And the result of that is Genesis 3, the curse of mankind, the curse of sin. God will not allow sin to go unpunished. He cannot. Have you ever... Ask one of those questions, is there anything God cannot do? It's a bit of a trick question, right? Can God make a stone so big that he can't hold it? 
That's an illogical question. It doesn't make any sense. But in fact, there are things that God cannot do. He can't lie. He can't cease from existing. The reality is God cannot do anything that would make God stop being God. He cannot do anything that's contrary to his nature. And that's what I mean when I say God is just because God is justice. God is loving because, as 1 John tells us, God is love. These are not things that God does. These are things that God is. Who he is. Therefore, question and answer 10 tells us that God is angry with our original sin. The sin that we have in Adam, our fallenness in Adam... But he's also angry with our actual sin. Not that original sin is an actual sin. The sins that we commit. That was really bad, but you know what I mean. The sins that we commit according to our sinful nature daily. And because God is eternal... That's also his nature, right? God is eternal. He always has been, always will be. The punishment that corresponds to the sins that we have committed against him must also be eternal. What is being talked about here is nothing less than Eternal condemnation and damnation. Eternity under the curse of God for our sin against the just judge. And that's how God's justice is expressed. It's expressed perfectly. So many of us look at something like eternal conscious torment in hell. That's too much. God, how could you possibly do that? Isn't that a little bit overboard? Isn't that a little bit too much? And if we feel at any time that the level of punishment that God gives for sins committed against him is too severe, then it's because we do not know who God is. And we do not know who we are. It's because we do not know how holy and righteous God is. And we do not truly know how sinful we are. There is no partiality with God. No one gets off the hook on a technicality. And that's exactly what Paul is speaking of in Romans chapter 2. The first three chapters, he sets that up perfectly. The idea that God is a just judge. And that he is holding everyone accountable to 
His law. His law, which is an expression of his very character, his very nature of who he is. And in chapter 2, Paul moves from speaking more to Gentiles, those who are pagans, who do not have God's law, who do not have God's revelation. And he begins to speak to his fellow Jew. And he's got some words for his fellow Jews. He's saying, if you liked all the things that I said in chapter 1 about how God has revealed himself in nature and how he's holding everyone accountable and how all these people who have turned from, from, uh, from him to idols and believing in all these things and have turned to all this wickedness and that they deserve God's righteous wrath and judgment, hold up. Because so do you. You have no excuse either. You pass judgment on someone else. And whenever you do that, you're condemning yourself because you have done the same things. Okay, maybe you don't make little silver idols and things that look like creatures that have been created and bow down and worship them. Maybe you don't go to any pagan temples, but you have the idol religious pride arrogance of thinking that you're something God's judgment against those who do things is based on truth so when we pass judgment on others but do the same things Do we think that we will escape God's judgment? And we're told here that God is showing us kindness and tolerance by overlooking the sins of humanity, overlooking all those who are fallen in Adam, caught in the covenant of works, the curse of the covenant of works, and giving us time that God is being merciful for not simply striking us dead, the moment that we sin against his almighty holiness, but rather giving us time to repent. There's no way to escape the wrath of God on a technicality. There is no way to escape his just judgment against us for our sin. You see, for God, there is no difference between his law and his justice. They are one and the same. They are both expressions of him, of who he is of his very nature, his character. That's what I mean when I say God is just because God is justice. His law is simply an expression of his character, his nature. He's just because he is justice. He's love because he is love. He is righteous because he is the righteous one. 
Let's talk about how God's justice is maintained. We've looked at how God's justice We've looked at how God's justice, what God's justice involves. We've looked at how God's justice is expressed. And now we look at why it's maintained. Turn a two into a three and it looks really bad. Why it's maintained. So everything I just said sounded like bad news, right? I mean, it doesn't seem like there's much hope there. And those words, and I think that's obvious, it's purposeful in the catechism. We're in the midst of the section on misery. It's not until we turn the next page that we turn to the, uh, the section on salvation or deliverance. We have to talk about God's justice and why it's maintained in order to understand how great a salvation that we have. And question and answer 11 says, a really important question. Isn't God also merciful? When you have all this talk about God's justice and how God is going to punish the wicked for their sin, but that's not the whole picture, is it? I mean, if that's the case, then, then we're all going to be gone. We're all going to be sent to hell, and rightfully we could be all sent to hell. I mean, the Bible would be a lot shorter, wouldn't it? Genesis 1, 2, 3, done. You see, we might begin to think that God's justice is the only way that He acts towards humanity. But we have to keep in mind always, always, as we look at the catechism, as we look at God's Word, that we are the comforted believers. Lord's Day 1. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to who? My faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, it's not like the catechism has forgotten about Jesus as we speak of God's justice. It's that God's justice is so important for us to understanding who Jesus is. The question that we must answer, the question that everyone must answer is that how can God both be merciful and just? How can the just judge of all the world who stands over us and holds us accountable to his law, which even every one of us has broken, look upon us and have mercy against such worms. That's the question, isn't it? How can he punish what rightfully must be punished, yet pardon those who have committed the very crimes? What are we talking about, Carrie, here? Is there, is, there a technicality? is there a technicality that we can get off the hook? All of humanity, every single last one of us has broken God's law and is worthy 
of eternal damnation, condemnation, eternal conscious punishment in hell. This is what we can't do. We can't pit God's mercy against his justice. We can't turn them against each other. What I mean by that is that when God shows mercy, he cannot show injustice. You know what I mean by this if you're a parent? It's that oftentimes we struggle with this tension, don't we? We want to show our children that it's not okay to be disobedient. But we also want to show them mercy. And me as a father, I express that so imperfectly. It's so broken. Oftentimes, I let them get off the hook. But I teach them injustice. Oftentimes... I bring the hammer down, but I'm not merciful. God cannot simply wave away what has been done with no punishment, for that would be injustice on God's part. And for God to express injustice would be for God to cease being God. God is just because God is justice. But to punish everyone who deserves his wrath would be to not display his mercy. And here's here's the catch. Of course it is true that God is just because God is justice. But God is also Merciful because he is mercy. So here we have in the perfect God both the perfect expression of justice and mercy. God must maintain his justice by requiring that the sin committed against him be punished with the everlasting punishment of body and soul, the answer tells us. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. To not do so would be to deny himself his very own nature and to cease being God. God is just because God is justice. God is merciful because God is mercy. And how can he be both, you might ask? How can he punish with the everlasting punishment of body and soul of those who have sinned against him and have mercy on those who have sinned against him? And the answer is another perfect representative faithful Savior Jesus Christ. 
When you read the, these words, God is certainly merciful, but he's also just, and his justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. When you read those words, the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul, I want you to think of one thing. And that's the cross of our dear Savior. Because you did not get off on a technicality. You got off because the place where God's righteous justice and wrath and his perfect mercy and grace met was at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because your faithful Savior, my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, looking upon cursed and sin-stricken mankind, hopeless, with no way to escape the wrath to come, took the supreme penalty, eternal punishment, of body and soul. That is what he experienced. That is why we confess in the Apostles' Creed that he descended into hell. Because what our Lord experienced upon the cross was the perfect justice and wrath of his Heavenly Father that we deserved for our sins against him. So that we could have the mercy of God. That's not a technicality. That's bought. That's paid for. That's bloodshed. Christ bore for us the supreme penalty of eternal punishment body and soul so that we could experience the loving and merciful embrace of our Heavenly Father. That's why His justice and His mercy are not pitted against each other. They perfectly meet at the cross. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You we thank you that you are just because you are justice. We thank you that you are merciful because you are mercy. That you are perfect in all of your ways. And we thank you that your son, Jesus Christ, who was truly man and truly God, would come as our representative and keep the covenant of works on our behalf never disobeying you, perfectly keeping your law, yet taking the punishment that we deserve for breaking it. We praise you for our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We praise you that we have a comfort and a hope in life and in death because of him, because of you. That even though we still live in this world that is broken by sin, sin that affects us still, 
that's inside of us, that's outside of us, that we have a promise that's unshakable, a foundation that will never be broken, that you and Jesus Christ have purchased us, redeemed us, have called us your own, your sons and your daughters, and that you are making all things new. And that we know that we can hold on to that promise, to keep that promise, because you are who you say you are. Because you are perfect in all of your ways. Because you are just your justice you're merciful because your mercy we see all these things in the name of Jesus Christ amen